Hello and welcome to another week of the Weekend Film Tech, a recce podcast. This is Charles Hayne. Doing my first post-NAB episode, so I'm going to be going over all sorts of the amazing stuff I saw last week at NAB. NAB, if you don't know, is the National Association of Broadcasters Convention. It is held every year in Las Vegas, and it is sort of the big trade show for the film and TV broadcast industry. So, the number one thing you do when you're walking around NAB is you're always walking up to people, and your default sort of greeting is like, so what did you see that's cool this year? It's like talking about the weather. And... The reason why it's useful is because legitimately one of the fun things about NAB is discovery. And you will totally have people be like, oh, I saw this thing. You got to go check that out. So there is a benefit to this. Like, what did you see that's cool that this year? But it's also really interesting because one of the big conversations that kept coming up this year was how this was like a headlineless NAB. The headline last year, Pro is Raw. The headline the year before that. Cinema lenses, right? Everybody two years ago had all of these cinema lens lines. So we have a lot of like big banner headlines here. And there wasn't a big banner headline for NAB this year. I mean, there's a lot of full frame stuff, but we also had a lot of full frame last year and the year before. There was a lot of other stuff sort of bubbling over the surface, but there wasn't like a big banner headline. Except the one thing that everybody talked about was Cinegear. So NAB, traditionally a week in Las Vegas in April. Cinegear, newer, not been around as long. I mean, NAB goes back to at least the 70s. I don't know when it started. I've been going to Cinegear in LA since like 2003, 2004, or maybe 2006, 2007. But it's been around at least a decade. And But it's a younger, and it's in LA. It's usually on a studio backlot. It's been a lot of years at Paramount, although I hear they're outgrowing Paramount. And it's more cinema-only focused. So NAB is a wonderful thing, but because it's got that word broadcast in it, there's like whole pavilions of like satellite equipment that like is not that interesting or relevant to my career and is not something that I've really worked with very often. There are like broadcast trucks and things like that that are just not like useful to me. And then the bigger thing has been that it's during the week. For years, I couldn't figure out why NAB was a Monday to Thursday show because that involves taking time off work. And then I realized that's the point. Like, NAB really caters to people who work for these big, huge companies. So, like, you're a broadcast engineer at NBC, or you are, like, a full-time camera person. And so the excuse to take a week off work, and you're being paid to go by your job, and it's part of, you know, growing those relationships, it makes sense that it's a Monday through Thursday. It's an excuse to escape for that week. There were a lot of years, even when I was living in L.A., when I didn't go to NAB. And the reason I didn't go is because I didn't want to miss out on all that freelance work that might pop up. Even if I hadn't booked something, I didn't want to miss out on booking something. So I always wondered why NAB wasn't a weekend show. And interestingly, next year, it's going to start on Sunday. And I bet the year after that, it starts on Saturday. And the reason why is I think there's fewer and fewer people with those big broadcasty type jobs um, where they're really interested in taking a week off work. And I think when NAB moves to a Saturday, Sunday start, I mean, next year, Sunday, I bet a lot of people drive out on Saturday, do Sunday, and then drive back to L.A. on Monday in, or Sunday night in order to not miss out on work as the film industry gets more and more freelance. And I know we're already like 90 percent freelance, but as those steady jobs where you take a week off and you're still getting paid become rarer and rarer. It doesn't make as much sense for NAB to be that midweek thing. On the flip side, Cinegear also is just Cine. It's in the name, Cine and Gear. And so, you know, Red doesn't have a booth anymore at NAB. DJI wasn't at NAB this year. But Red traditionally has a booth 
at Cinegear, and Cinegear tends to have a much bigger presence from a lot of more cinema-focused companies. You know, last year, Panasonic held off two years ago. Panasonic had the EVA-1 under a curtain at NAB and then released it at Cinegear. So there's this momentum shift happening between NAB and Cinegear, and that was the big headline of this year's NAB. I think NAB is trying to find who it is in this world that is shifting away from being so focused on traditional broadcast. I don't know if they're going to rebrand themselves. I know that all of their marketing and promotion this year was all about story, story, story. And I think that was a really interesting move for them to be pivoting in that direction. As broadcast becomes less prominent, as we move to this world where streaming is much more important, I think it's really interesting to see the way NAB and Cinegear relate. Hopefully I'll be able to keep covering Cinegear with as much regularity as I cover NAB because there's starting to be more interesting announcements out of there. And it's a great way to sort of connect with those people. Now, here's the bummer about that. I'm not a big Vegas fan, but the fun thing about NAB being in Vegas is everybody goes and nobody lives there. I mean, I have a couple friends who live in Vegas who go, but for the most part, we're all there together away from our home. So we're all going out to dinners every night. There's parties every night. Like there's things you are doing every evening. And all of that is like a huge, valuable part of NAB. Like I've never gone to one of those paid conferences at NAB. I go to the show floor and then I go out at night. And that is a huge thing. When I go to Cinegear in LA, I, I might go to dinner with some people I went to Cinegear with, but it's not that big, cohesive, organized, we are all here from out of town everybody's going to go to dinner. Everybody's going to do this thing that you get at NAB. And so it's a different kind of thing in terms of building your professional relationships and meeting new people. The number of new people I've met at dinners at NAB is tremendous. And it's been people that have, you know, led to a lot of professional opportunities later. And I I can't say the same about Cinegear. I see people I already know at Cinegear and I see new toys at Cinegear, but because it's in LA where like half the film industry already lives, it doesn't have that summer camp atmosphere. So it's an interesting thing. I hope NAB finds a way to keep combating the growth of Cinegear and finds a way to keep itself in the mix because I would like it to continue to offer that really valuable experience of sitting at a dinner with a bunch of people that I haven't gotten to know that well yet, meeting new people. And that's really a unique experience to the fact that it is where no one lives, except I know some of you do live in Las Vegas. Other headline, and I'm going to say it's a sneaky headline. The other headline for me is the thing I've thought about most since I got back from NAB is AI. Uh, Look, it's a buzzword. It's like a buzzy term. Machine learning and artificial intelligence is something we're all talking about all the time in terms of the coming apocalypse for jobs. Totally. It is something I'm very reluctant to talk about. But Among all the other features I saw demonstrated, DaVinci Resolve 16 had this great feature where you highlight your footage and then it uses machine learning to analyze the faces in all your footage and it creates smart bins for each character. So if you have like Patricio and Tony having an argument, it looks at all the footage, identifies Patricio's face and Tony's face, and then creates a Patricio bin and a Tony smart bin. That is awesome. For narrative production, it's going to be really useful. For documentary production, it's going to be super useful. It is going to be super useful in lots of ways. And it's a job stealer. Look, we all know machine learning and AI is coming for certain aspects of our industry. We really hope that the super creative end of our industry, the big high end of the industry, the the part of the industry we're all aspiring to, department heads involve so much creativity, the robots can't come for our jobs anytime soon. But it's really fascinating to be like, oh, this is going to turn, if it works as well as the demo worked, 
Thank you, Jason Truce, for a great demo. If it works as well as the demo worked, we're really in a situation where, you know, where I previously might schedule 10 assistant days, I might schedule five assistant days, right? And that is five days that someone is not getting work. And that is five days essentially where someone is not like assistant editing. There are career assistant editors who are very happy. There's fun and creativity in that job. But a lot of assistant editors are trying to become editors. And it's one of those ways you can keep making a living while you're trying to climb the ladder. And it is kind of terrifying. I'm not worried about machine learning and AI coming for the top of department jobs that quickly. I am super worried about those entry-level jobs that are the jobs that let you get started and let you get going in industry, getting eaten alive by AI and machine learning. I mean, we've already seen it in outsourcing in the VFX industry. Like in the 90s and early 2000s, Roto was very traditionally the way you would start in VFX, right? You'd you'd get a job as an entry-level job and it would be a Roto job. And now so much Roto is outsourced internationally because it can be done overnight. You ship the shot out at five. The next morning you come in, it's already done. It's much cheaper that way. So you see a lot of Indian and Ukrainian companies sort of taking that business. But that means that that classic entry-level job is no longer here. And that makes it really hard to climb up to the higher-level jobs here, which doesn't mean there aren't higher-level jobs in North America. There certainly are, but, like, that path is different. And it's interesting to think about what those paths are going to be when AI and machine learning take away some of those assistant tasks. Now, on the flip side, they're going to add some other assistant tasks, and our expectations are going to become much higher that you can just sit down and have a bin of everybody sorted out by every shot that has that person's face in it and things like that. So, you know, as the counter-argument to the AI and machine learning thing is that everyone was also afraid that farm machinery would ruin our, you know, nobody would have a job once there were tractors and, you know, nobody could have guessed the number of yoga teachers we would employ. So obviously there will be other jobs. It's just interesting to think about how our paths through the industry are going to shift with AI and machine learning, which seem like they're coming for the lower end jobs a lot faster than they're going to come for the high end jobs. So that was a big theme of NAB for me this year that I thought was really fascinating. The second big theme of NAB for me is a much faster cannibalization cycle than I am used to. So it was only two or three years ago that the Shogun Inferno came out. I'm working with the Shogun Inferno right here. Um, and it's a great device, very affordable, does all sorts of formats. The drives are very reasonable. It works with Sony batteries. I use it all the time. But now the Shogun 7 has come out, which is like within two or three years, like a very fast cycle refresh. And from what I saw at NAB, I'm going to end up doing a review of it hopefully this summer. Holy crap, that monitor is beautiful. And like the angle of view isn't, you know, we were like trying to show it with uh, the shooter and like the angle of view is crazy. And like that's a very fast cannibalization cycle. Airy came out with the mini LF around a year after coming out with the full-size LF. That is a fast cannibalization cycle, especially because Airy knows that the mini LF is going to be a huge hit. So you have a whole lot of customers. And I'm going to, full disclosure, the school where I teach, Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema, um, we just got an Airy LF. And I feel like it was 100% the right decision for us. And I'm very excited to be the first film school that we know of who has one. And all of the thesis films will be shooting it. It's going to be really great. And I'm pretty sure we still would have chosen the full-size LF over the mini LF if both had been available. But... As someone who is part of a school that just bought this camera, man, the fact that there's already a mini out so fast is definitely like... And, you know, if I were a rental house that had just bought four LFs, the mini is going to be very hot in a certain indie section of the market. I And I asked Ari about this. It'll be in the newsletter. I was like, are you afraid of cannibalizing your own market here? And they were like, well, if someone's going to cannibalize it, we figure why not us? And I feel like that's a very smart move from Ari's part, but that is a fast willingness to cannibalize themselves. Why is the Airy Mini going to be such a huge hit? So first off, if you look at the original Alexa Mini, 
huge monster hit. You were seeing people getting two or three years out of its rental cycle. Usually you buy a camera, you you hope if you pay it off in 18 months, that's great because the rental price is going to drop so fast in 18 months. You're still seeing, you look at ShareGrid and Kit Split, two years out, three years out, the uh, Mini, the Alexa Mini is one of the most popular rental cameras out there because you get the beauty of Alexa color science, which is still the top. And you get it in like a really compact form factor, which is phenomenal. The Alexa LF, you're getting that huge sensor, right? The large format sensor, which is beautiful. And you're in the big full-size Alexa body, which is great because you're going to get like 150 frames per second. You're going to get all sorts of other features out of it. You have built-in wireless transmitters. You have a whole lot of stuff that you're not getting with the Mini, but the Mini is going to be huge because you get that smaller form factor. And if I'm going out, like if you look at Sundance, like 85% of the movies at Sundance were shot at the original Mini. And in two years, 85% of them will be on the Mini LF because I don't need all that slow-mo if I'm just going out and shooting an indie feature about like feelings and growth and stuff like that. Like that slow-mo is going to be really useful for commercial work and action work work, but you're not going to see it on the kind of traditional Sundance movie. And as much as I love that Aries integrated wireless transmitters in that LF, which is great, they only work with Aries receivers, even though they're all using Amimon boards. So they theoretically could play together, but they don't. And for the record, like not a lot of the brands play together, even though they're all Amimon boards or chips. And look, if you have the whole infrastructure, which we got here at Fierstein, you've got the LF and you have the area receivers and everything all plays together. That's great. If I'm like an indie DP, I probably own a Teradek or a Paralynx already or Vaxxus or Hollyland or any of the other up and coming ones. And if I'm a freelancer, I'm going to want the Alexa LF Mini because it doesn't come with the wireless transmitter built in so I can use my own and I can play with whatever the production is using, right? Like maybe the director already owns their own like little small HD 702 bolt receiver. So the fact that the wireless video isn't built in is actually a plus in the Mini LF. So I mean, I'm not in any position to do this at the moment, but like it's the first camera in a long time where I'm like, oh, if you put in an order for this today, you will absolutely pay it off in two or three years. It will be a hot rental item with legs. So the Mini LF is a super exciting thing for Mary, but holy cow, did they cannibalize themselves quickly. And that was a really interesting thing. Theme, I thought, of NAB this year was I think people are getting much more willing to cannibalize their own market on a faster cycle than they were before. There were two other themes I sort of noticed at this year's NAB. One was integrations. We're seeing a lot more integrations of products and products sort of wrapping themselves together. So, for instance, something we saw last year's NAB and something I played with in January, Small HD and Teradek RT have built this amazing thing where you have your Teradek RT follow focus. And with a single cable, you mount a small HD monitor on top of it, which has a built-in wireless Teradek receiver. So it's getting wireless video, including lens data, from the camera. And you get a single cable, and it's going down to your follow focus, and it's getting follow focus data. So if you've lens mapped down in your follow focus thing, that data is up there on the small HD, and you can follow focus, and you're looking at the monitor holding the follow focus, and you can wander around anywhere because it's all wireless, and it's all integrated, and it's all like slick integrations. And I think slick integrations are really exciting. As, as cameras have get, gotten more complicated and had more accessories and more random wires, it's really exciting to see these integrations going on. And we're even seeing them in post, like DaVinci Resolve now ships with Frame.io built in. And I have to talk about that. Because like six months ago, I was in some meeting somewhere and someone was like, so where is Resolve slacking? And I was like, well, I feel like Resolve is killing it in a lot of ways. But the whole cloud infrastructure, I feel like they are sort of a step behind everybody else. And then I said, I feel like that's okay. Because I don't actually really use the like cloud sharing tools that are built into Premiere and Media Composer. They have them. But my internet's never fast enough, and it's never a useful workflow, and the integrations are so hiccupy. And I'm really excited that Frame.io and Resolve integrated it together because, frankly, I feel like that's a much smarter move. It allows Resolve, Blackmagic, to really just focus on continuing to improve the software, building out their AI tool set, 
focusing on the thing 95% of us use and then outsourcing the whole cloud infrastructure to a specialist, Frame.io, who's already doing a really great job with it, who is building a lot of that infrastructure integration with Resolve in a really smart way. And it's, I think it's smarter to let them do that. Media Composer and Adobe are building all of their own like cloud sharing tool sets themselves, which are going to offer them some benefits, but I don't use those yet. I'm already using Frame.io all the time. And now Frame.io is coming pre-built into 16, although... As a school where we run a lot of Resolve, I really hope they have some sort of academic plan coming because we can't afford to buy all of our students full price for MIO, but it would be really great if we could be teaching them how to use MIO while we're here, and then they'd all come out addicted and, you know, come on, MIO, give us an academic plan. But in the short term, what's really fascinating about it is the way in which that integration really works is super exciting. So, you know, they had a little box set up where on set it was live streaming uh, low-res proxies to the cloud. So they'd shoot a shot, and then a few seconds later, you'd watch it appear in Frame.io. And then, obviously, those are popping up on Frame.io. Frame.io appears as a hard drive in your Resolve, so you can just start dragging those shots in. You could be on the other side of town. You're in uptown. They're shooting in downtown. They're using this box, which is automatically putting low-res proxies that are metadata matched and time code matched and shot name matched up in Frame.io, you're pulling them down off Frame.io wherever you are editing. You are using that as a shared drive between multiple editors, perhaps. And then all of the commenting tools that are going on at the end of your edit are also all there. So it's a really interesting integration that I think is going to be very useful to explore, and I'm really excited about that integration. And we're seeing, you know, all sorts of other integrations across NAB are really the thing that I think are are working to streamline all of the platforms and workflows together. And that, for me, was a really exciting theme of NAB. Again, none of them have the big headline of two years ago where it was like, the year of the CineLens, but these are the, the patterns that I really saw when I was looking out there at NAB and what was going on. The last thing I have to talk about with NAB, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about, was this is the year of the super powerful LED. I write for No Film School. I was there making videos for them. I didn't make our biggest video. Our biggest video was made by Oakley Anderson Moore. Shout out to Oakley, who made a video with Mole Richardson looking at their basically 20K equivalent LED that went out to two Edison plugs and you could wall plug it. So a 20K... You could plug into two house outlets, right? It needs to be two separate fingers. You can't put it in one circuit. But 20K, wall pluggable. $40,000. But that was a huge hit. And this is something we've all been desperately waiting on. And I was so excited it was from Mole Richardson, which means it's going to have, like, real durability and real build quality. And, And it's a Mole Richardson product, and that's super exciting. But even separate from that, right? Hive was showing off. We haven't published it yet, but they were showing it in AB, so I can talk about it. Hive was showing off a 575 full RGB, one of their Wasp lights that you can get all of the beautiful color. You know, my backlight right now is a Hive 100C. This is the 575C. It's going to be a very exciting unit, and it's going to really, like, slot into that same place as, like, an HMI Joker bug, but, of course, with full RGB. You were seeing a 300D Mark II from Aperture, which is going to be a little more powerful. Aperture also did a really fascinating thing where they're including, like, a Bluetooth field. So now you don't have to be in Bluetooth range of all your lights. Your lights can talk to each other, and you just have to be in Bluetooth range of one of your lights, and then it'll be able to control the mesh. Very cool. A company I never heard of, Intellitech, had a very punchy wall pluggable LED 
that is going to be really exciting. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able to do a review this summer or this fall of that unit. So there's some like exciting things coming in punchy LEDs. We're not quite at a point yet where it's like, we're not using tungsten or HMI anymore. But we're definitely getting really close to that point where all of the benefits of the power efficiency of LED and now the color reproduction of LED, which is becoming like a thing that is super useful. I think we're starting to see hit the streets. And that was a super exciting thing to see at NAB. I also have to throw it out here. NAB. One of the beautiful things about it, one of the reasons you should go, in addition to like getting to know people and having fun, exciting adventures, is you wander the halls and people just randomly come up to you and are like, hey, check this thing out. Um, on our last day there, this guy came up to us and he was like, hey, new shooter in Cinema 5D loved this, which is like, I mean, I know people are going to say that to me like a dozen times next year, but it was actually a good pitch this year. I was like, oh, other people, I'm tired, but other people liked it, so I'm curious. So you can't use that pitch next year, but it worked this year. It was a little box. HDMI only. It's basically the Teradex Surf Pro is like a $2,000 box, HDMI, SDI, and it creates a Wi-Fi network that streams video. It's great. I love it. I have a Surf. I use it on every set I work on. I teach with it. It's amazing. All of a sudden, you have 10 people walking around with their iPhones getting wireless video. And so, like, art department's out in the back, and they're, like, checking their iPad as they dress the set. I love the Surf Pro. This is the new Axon, A-C-C-S-O-N. I could not find anything about it on the Internet. But uh, they flagged us down, and it's really designed to go like on a DSLR. It's HDMI only. It doesn't even need accessory power. It's like got a built-in battery inside it, or you can hook it up with a USB charger like you would use for your phone. It's got a USB-C in, and it does the same thing. It creates a little Wi-Fi network where like four or five people can connect with an app and see streaming video. And it was like $300, which is like super cool because I think that's actually a really interesting way. Like if I'm on a little shoot and I'm out there with like, I'm shooting on an X-H1 right now or whatever I'm shooting on, and I don't want to, you know, my X-H1 and the Surf Pro cost the same. This is a little $300 thing. It's probably not going to be as robust. It's probably not going to be as easy to interface with, but it's going to be usable. Like we saw demos and it was certainly like a fun thing to work with. They also apparently have a workaround where it can stream to like a Chrome stick or something you could plug into a normal TV. So stuff like that is like one of those magic pleasures of NAB where you're just wandering around and people flag you and they're like, hey, check this out. Um, so there was so much at NAB this year. I'm going to do another week in film tech next week where I talk about a couple other things at NAB that are still sort of rumbling with me and we'll see how that goes. That has been this week in film tech, the post NAB episode. If you like what we talked about, you should go to recycast.com and sign up for our mailing list. I will send out little reminders of new episodes that will also have links to some of the stuff I talk about. So you can read a little bit more about it or watch videos and whatnot. You should also subscribe to the podcast wherever you subscribe to your podcasts and you should follow us at on recce on Instagram, where you'll see like photos of stuff I'm reviewing and be, and stuff like that. Charles Hain, The Week in Film Tech. Thank you.